Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged to welcome, welcome a very, very accomplished and respected professional from Cambridge, UK, Dr. Michael Schluter, CBE. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Dr. Schluter is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Relational Peacebuilding Initiatives. He's an author of several books. His most recent books are, Is Corporate Capitalism the Best We've Got to Offer? And No Other Way to Peace in Korea, A Practical Path to Re Reunification of the Peninsula. So Michael, before we talk about relational peacebuilding initiatives, tell me a little bit about your own amazing journey. Uh, and you just told me before we started recording that you were in India at Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. And what inspired you to establish the relational peace building initiatives? Um, so I was very interested at, originally in how one finds an alternative to capitalism, Marxism and socialism, fascism. Mm -hmm. I was interested in the big ideological questions. That's where right. I started my journey. I was in East Africa at the time. And many African students at Nairobi University at that time were asking me, look, um, coming out of my Christian background, um, what on earth do you think we can say to these ideologies uh, which are challenging our continent? Uh, so that started me thinking and started me on a long journey, mm. uh, which um, made me realize that the most important thing in a person's life is their relationships, actually. Right. Right. It's more important than money. It's more important to their happiness, their health, their well-being at every level. Mm. It's the quality of the relationships around them. But we have no analytical framework for um, being able to explore relationships in more depth. And we lack tools and ideas on how you build relationships, not just between individuals, but relationships between organizations mm. and ultimately relationships between nations. Mm. And it's the nation's bit that got me into the peace building business. Mm. Amazing. So can you explain uh, for my viewers and listeners the core philosophy behind relational peace building? And how does relational peace building differ from so many other uh, initiatives or approaches? So um, the core idea behind the way we've developed our relational thought is that there are five dimensions in building what we call relational proximity, whether mm -hmm. it's between individuals or organizations mm -hmm. or nations. Um, they are, you need directness of communication. So it's much better to meet face to face than by an email or uh, even a Zoom call like this, if you could mm. just be in the same room, makes a big difference. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you can interpret 10,000 different uh, facial expressions in another person. Mm. And uh, when we have a Zoom call, at least you get a, a crack at that. Correct. Uh, and then you need continuity over time mm. to get to trust people deeply. Uh, you need a breadth of knowledge of their background, just like the bits of background we were sharing with one another are... Mm -hmm. um, of where we're coming from and why we're doing what we're doing mm. and then uh, there's an issue of mutual respect mm -hmm. uh, and a sharing and decisions things like that come in and and then there's do we have a commonality of purpose mm. so i think we are both aligned on our purpose in the sense that we are seeking to to give something back we're seeking to do something good in the world mm. and 
that commonality of purpose is another source of bonding. So all of those things help us understand how to build deeper relationships. Amazing. Uh, my next question is that what are some of the major challenges uh, faced in peace building at an international level? Um, I think I identified two main ones to mention. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is you need to identify and then build relationships uh, which take time mm -hmm. over time mm -hmm. with the key people on both sides. So who are the leaders here and who are the people close to them who can um, have their ear. Mm -hmm. So you need to know who those people are because it's much easier to influence the advisors to political leaders than to reach the political leaders themselves. Mm. But if you can reach the advisors, they will feed it in at the right mm. time in the right way. Mm. Secondly, I'm afraid it's a rather um, material consideration. Mm -hmm. um, if you are uh, working for a government, if you are in an immediate um situation where you're trying to release Hamas hostages and so on, it's quite easy to sell that idea to people. Mm. But if what you're trying to do is create a context for peace, if you're trying to um, build a shared vision between two groups like Russia and Ukraine or uh, North Korea and South Korea, if you're trying to do those kinds of things, mm. it's much harder to raise the money for that because it has to be done behind the scenes and, and mm. it takes time, a lot of time. So the fundraising becomes quite a critical constraint. Hmm. Very interesting. And uh, Michael, what would you say are a few strategies you would find most effective in facilitating dialogue between conflicting parties? Uh, so the way that we've done things is that we've tried to identify who the key people are to a particular situation. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of research to find out what the key issues are mm -hmm. that they are most concerned about, mm -hmm. and then who are the experts that we can invite into the room. So we mm -hmm. organize conferences based on this research to invite in um, both the parties and the experts mm -hmm. um, who can speak to the particular issues that we know the parties want to talk about. Otherwise, why would the parties come? Mm -hmm. They didn't think they were going to get something useful out of it. You can't sort of go out there and say, oh, would you like to come to my conference? They say, well, mm. We're busy, actually. Mm. Why should we travel halfway across the world right. to come to your conference so you can mm. say that you have these people there? No, mm. it's behind the scenes. So we're not going to publicize they're there anyway. But the point is, we have to have done the research and understand what is troubling them and why we believe that there are ways forward out of this conflict. Mm. Fascinating. And are there any misconceptions about peace building that you would like to address? Um, well, I think sometimes people think peace building is really about mediation. Mm. So let's get the two parties together and we'll get them to sort it out just by as if a, a man and a woman in a marriage are having a quarrel. Mm -hmm. But international peace building is not like that. Mm. It is a more complicated issue in a way because you've got so many interest groups pulling in different directions mm. and unless you've done a lot of research first and really worked out mm. what people's interests are and what really matters to them it may be financial but it may be cultural mm -hmm. or geopolitical in some way mm -hmm. um, it may be to do with military questions mm. all sorts of factors come in so finding really 
what motivates people mm -hmm. and interests them sufficiently to give up the time and make the effort to come in the same room and talk, mm. uh, then you won't make much progress, I think. Mm. Okay. And when you talk about, uh, you know, you told me about some of the challenges that one faces between with conflicting parties. What happens when it becomes uh, diplomatic entities, you know, and diplomats are trained, as they say, for peacekeeping and so on, or peace building. What are some of the challenges you face when, it, when talking to diplomats? <laughs> well, well, I may not please many diplomats if I say this, but I think a lot of diplomats are trained in in the skill of ambiguity. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, all right. So, so I think we want to try and cut through the um, the red tape. I wasn't. It isn't really red tape. I mean, um, cut through the um, diplomatic language and the ambiguities we want mm. to deal with what the real substantive questions are and mm. that means you have to know what the substantive issues are on both sides and mm. you have to have thought about it or done research in our case we think about it more mm. in research terms to see well where are the win-win solutions mm. that are are likely to be acceptable to both parties mm. and which you can then persuade them to think about and then persuade them all right uh, if these are possible shared outcomes, what are the stepping stones mm. to get there? Mm. That's how we see it. Mm. Okay. And uh, are there any ethical principles that come into play uh, when it comes to you know peace building in conflict zones? Um, well, I suppose the ethical principles are those that you would probably want to apply in almost any situation mm -hmm. um it's 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 vital that you are a person of integrity mm -hmm. that you don't say one thing to a person on one side of the conflict and then the opposite to somebody on the other side of the conflict but you are always the same person to both sides in the conflict that's crucial mm -hmm. um, that sense of knowing who you are and what you believe and why and being willing to talk honestly to both sides about what you believe so that they don't get a different story when they ask somebody, well, what did he say to you? Mm. And then you find, <laughs> and then they, <laughs> then that person finds you said it's completely the opposite. And then they think, well, this person really isn't being honest with me. Then it's very important. You retain your integrity. I think that's probably the main and primary principle. Mm. And then I think also there are certain basic relational skills about mm -hmm. accepting people and listening to them carefully, not wanting to jump in with your idea straight away, mm -hmm. uh, but being willing to listen and understand where they're coming from. So those are probably uh, at least a couple of the main principles. I point no, they're, they're absolutely fascinating. And uh, my next question is, how is technology? And when I say technology, I also mean a lot of social media. How is that beginning to impact the whole process of peace building? Because, you know, everyone seems to be sharing an opinion or a view or a rumor, uh, and it's all over the place. It is. And also, you, uh, I've noticed with BBC, they're talking about BBC Verify now. <laughs> and they give a news which they call BBC Verify. I yeah. We've verified the facts in this newscast. <laughs> yes. And I think it is a huge challenge. Mm. Um, 
uh, to know how you ensure people realize who they're speaking to mm. and don't confuse you with some AI scam, mm. which may uh, imitate your voice and pretend it's you and it isn't you at all. Mm. And I foresee that becoming a bigger and bigger problem in the future. It's about how you how you know that you're listening to the person you think you're talking to and how they know that they're listening to you genuinely. Mm. So I see I see problems arising on that side. On the other mm. side, the fact we can have a Zoom call like this and that we can have a Zoom call with the parties obviously mm. is an enormous advantage because you don't have to get on a flight every single time. Correct. But at the same time, it is so important that um, we are meeting people face to face because they say you can recognize 10,000 expressions in another person. Right. In So the facial language is very subtle. Mm. And although you pick up a lot of that in a, in a Zoom call, you don't pick it up, all of that up. You don't pick up all the body language. Mm. And also you don't see third parties in the room and how they're responding if right. you are talking between groups say to companies boardrooms or something mm. you don't see the um, finance officer um, frowning when the chief executive is making an offer to the other party because if mm. you saw that you might realize that down this down the track you're going to have problems so um yeah there's no substitute for face-to-face yeah, absolutely you know sitting and sitting in a boardroom or sitting in a, in a negotiating room observing body language is such an important part of understanding what's going on Oh, it is. Yes, I absolutely agree. Yeah. But my next question to you, Michael, is what qualities do you believe are essential for effective leadership in a peace building initiative or a process? Um, I suppose the main one is patience and perseverance. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, these things don't come quickly. And that's where we found that you can't actually, we can't as a group involve ourselves in, in very many conflict issues at the same time because there just isn't time to spend with the parties. Mm. You have to be willing to put in a lot of time and you can try for a quick fix at a political level and mm. that's what I'm sure a lot of diplomats do and I'm not saying it isn't important and worthwhile to try and do that but mm. for the kind of peace building that we are trying to do where we're trying to create a shared vision of the future mm. and that means that it's um it's really important to understand what the future would look like and what would be acceptable to each party and see where the win-win situations are mm. so i think it is about patiently building those relationships and being willing to have some setbacks on the journey and and some patience because the geopolitical context may change or somebody may say something which offends the other party and then you've got to bring them back at the, to the table. So mm. it is a process and you've got to be willing to put the time in over a period of years, not months. Mm. Interesting. You know, you've told me about qualities of, a, of an effective leader. You've told me about other aspects of peace building. But I wanted to ask you, what are some key lessons you have learned about human nature and conflict through your work? I suppose I've learned that um, 
it's very difficult to classify people as bad guys and good guys. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I think we're all flawed as people, <laughs> including you and me, my brother. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's tough uh, sometimes. And um, but there are always opportunities with people mm-hmm. um, as long as one is willing to spend time with them and listen to them and build their confidence. Mm. And so it does give me hope that every conflict situation um, can bring solutions. So you look at the Russia-Ukraine situation and mm. how they're bashing against each other and killing yeah. each other at the borders and you know putting down minefields and all the other horrendous things go- mm. that are going on. And yet, you know, I know Russians and I know Ukrainians mm. and I know them. The ones I know are all <laughs> delightful people. And I'm thinking... Really? Surely it's possible to bring leaders from these two nations that have been close to one another for generations Mm. to come together and have a discussion and find ways forward that that suit both of them. Yeah. Now, Why doesn't it happen? Well, I think partly it's a lack of research. Honestly, people haven't really spent the time to dig down and see what the deep concerns are on both sides, why mm. they are really fighting this war, mm. which may be very different from what they're saying. Mm. Mm. And also where, I don't know, it may be shipment of grain coming mm. out of Ukraine or something, but but what other ways of imagining how this could be done mm. might work mm. and might actually tick the boxes of both sides. So, mm. um, So in that sense, it makes me very hopeful that almost any conflict you think of can be resolved peacefully mm. if people are prepared to put enough time and work into mm. looking for the way forward. Mm. Mm. I agree. And probably a, a put in a, a little more trust uh, in the other person, which is difficult, I would imagine. But Yes, I think that is difficult. Mm. And um, there is a, a verse from uh, Paul's writing in the New Testament that I like very much, which... Mm where he says, he's talking about love, and he says, you know, always think the best of what the other person is saying. Yeah. Always assume the best, mm. not the worst. Absolutely. And I think there's a kind of instinctive uh, reaction that we have to assume mm. the worst mm. <laughs> in mm. other people and not assume the best. Yeah. And particularly if we're in a conflict situation, we assume they're deceiving us. We assume that they've got some ulterior motive or something. Mm. Instead of assuming the best of them and thinking well actually they are grasping after something and how Mm. can we make the most of that Mm. great response thank you my next question uh you know in in a world michael where conflict is going on between russia and ukraine there is conflict going on between israel and palestine or gaza or hamas there are potential conflicts you know flashpoints in korea taiwan china iran saudi arabia as an expert in this area, what trends do you foresee uh, in the field of international peace building? Uh, hmm. My observation is that we're not seeing any decline in the number of conflicts taking place, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately. Absolutely. Uh, and we are moving towards a multipolar world now in terms of geopolitics. Yeah. 
So we've not just got the US and Russia as we had, you know, the Cold War. Mm -hmm. We've now got China thrown into the mix as well as another huge player. Mm -hmm. So we are moving increasingly in a multipolar context, mm -hmm. which complicates things significantly, mm -hmm. but also potentially perhaps opens up more opportunities as well. I don't want to see it all negatively. Mm -hmm. in fact, I think there are many advantages in moving into a more multipolar world. Mm -hmm. um, I've always found it difficult, uh, for example, with the US um, in getting into the State Department. Mm -hmm. And particularly, you know, when you build up a relationship with some senior people in the State Department, and then there's a change of president, mm -hmm. and then there's a change in the top positions, and then you're kind of back to square one again. Yes. After four years or eight years, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, but when it's a multipolar world, some of the other poles in the geopolitical context may remain constant, mm -hmm. for example. So I think um, I think there is going to be glowing complexity mm -hmm. in the geopolitical context of local conflicts. Mm -hmm. But it may open up more avenues of influence to the players on both sides. Mm. Fascinating. I have time for two more questions for you. My next question is, can you share a specific case where your intervention led to a breakthrough in negotiations? Um, we were involved at the end of apartheid mm -hmm. in okay. trying to bring uh, a peaceful transition to democratic rule in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And we were involved in that from mm. 1986 to 1994. Mm. In 1994, just a few weeks mm. before the first elections, um, obviously the black African community were going to dominate in those elections, but mm. they were badly split between the ANC and the Zulu mm. party. Mm. So the Zulus are the biggest tribe in South Africa and or ethnic group, I should say, in South Africa. And, and they were... Um, they were quite split themselves. Mm. Some were supporting the ANC, but many of them were supporting uh, the king of the Zulus and Chief Butalesi, mm. uh, who had organized another political party called Inkata. Mm. Inkata was threatening to boycott the elections yeah. in South Africa. Mm. And the State Department said that if this is not resolved, then probably we're going to see a million people who will die on election day. Wow. Um, in South Africa, I think it was April the 27th, as I remember. Mm. So this was a very critical moment in South Africa in 1994. Mm. So we realized how difficult it was for us uh, with our white skins mm. to be helpful and influential. But we had um, developed a close relationship with a very eminent uh, Kenyan diplomat called mm -hmm. Washington Okubu. Mm -hmm. And Washington Okumu knew um, Mandela, who was going to be the president, but he mm. also knew Chief Butalesi because he'd met him years before, mm. uh, I think, at the um, prayer breakfast in Washington or somewhere like that. Mm. He got to know him. So he knew both of them. So we knew Washington Okumu well, and we uh, arranged for him to travel down to South Africa three times to be able to meet with Butalesi and Mandela and try and find a way forward between them, which would bring peace. Mm. So he first went to um, uh, 
he first went to Zimbabwe to meet with Mugabe, who was mm -hmm. head of the Organization of Africa Unity, as it yep. was called at that time, the OAU, and got his permission to intervene. And then he traveled down to South Africa and he was able to meet with um, with Chief Butelezi, um in Durban and talk it through with him and talk mm. through a possible peace program between them. Mm. And the consequence of all of that was that Encarta did come into the elections, mm. did participate. And after they appeared in public mm. in Johannesburg on the same platform, Mandela Butelezi and our friend Professor Akumu, from that moment that they appeared together and said, we have found a solution as to how this can work, mm. The violence in the townships stopped overnight. Now, up to that time, 20 people every night had been killed. But what they were really worried about, the State Department and the international community, was a million people dying mm. as violence on election day in all the major cities across South Africa. But Incredible. that never happened in the end because of this peace building process that had gone on in advance. Incredible. What an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. And my last question to you, Michael, if you had one message to share with the world about peace and conflict resolution, what would it be? Well, I think the message would be um, never think it's too complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, never lose hope mm. uh, and engage. Mm with the process in any way you can mm. don't think it's outside your the possibility that you could make in some way make a difference it may be through a, an insha internship mm. in an organization it may be through a piece of research you do it may be simply through prayer mm. <laughs> or it may be by giving money to the kinds mm. of organizations that are working in this space so mm. there's all kinds of ways in which you may be able to influence the outcomes mm. don't don't give up don't lose hope, um, mm. persist and and get involved. Amazing. And on that note, and your wonderful and powerful message, never think it's too complicated. Don't lose hope and engage. Thank you, Michael, for speaking to me about your own journey. Thank you for talking to me about relation, relational peace building initiatives. And thank you also for talking to me at such length about different aspects of peace building, conflict resolution, and the role each one of us can play. Thank you for speaking to me and good luck to you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Brand Called You videocast and podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.